Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this Friday follow-up episode of Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. And this is follow-up 249, Deceived by Omission. Right, Bob, and before we get into that, let's let everybody know what our plans are for next week's follow-up. Right, so as I think we've mentioned before, this Sunday, Mike and I are heading to Texas. We have a lot of work to do kind of all over the state next week. We've got some very important things we're tracking down in Ed's case, and we're also beginning our investigation into our next case while we're there. So since we're not going to be in the studio next week where we can't take phone calls, next week we're going to record a live follow-up episode. That's right. We're having a fan meetup next Wednesday for anybody around the Dallas area or that's willing to drive to the Dallas area. Wednesday night, the 18th, at 7.30 p.m. local time, and I believe that's central time, we're going to be meeting at the Buffalo Wild Wings in Cedar Hill, Texas. And for those of you that don't know, Cedar Hill is a suburb of Dallas. So this will be a standard fan meetup. We'll all get together. We'll sit around and chat. But we're also going to get the microphones up and do kind of a town hall meeting type forum where you guys can ask questions right there on the spot for the Friday follow-up episode for next week. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to meeting all of you. All right, so with that being said, we're going to get right into this week's episode of the Friday Follow-Up. Okay, so typically what we like to do for the follow-up episodes is record the calls, and then after that, once we figure out what topics we cover in that segment, we'll go back and record segment one, which is the social media stuff. Right. So we actually record these out of order. That's why a lot of times during the calls, you hear us referencing something we're going to talk about in segment one. That's because we have a plan, but we haven't actually recorded that yet. So this week, we had some really great calls. There was something like 40 minutes of calls, and they really covered pretty much everything we wanted to talk about this week for segment one, including a question about the significance of Leonard Mosley not disclosing to Huckel that he was supposed to go to Elnora's the night she was killed. Right, but I think we could just save that for segment two because we had a long discussion with a listener, and I think it answers a lot of those questions. Okay, but I do have one email that I want to read from a longtime listener and friend of the show, Paul Vinette. Paul writes to us, something totally different. Okay, I gotta say it because no one else is. I can't put down this Francis Johnson guy. He tells multiple people he was at the scene of the crime and that he witnessed Leonard Mosley arrive and leave. 
He then says he beat up Elnora, including that a knife was involved in the fight that she pulled on him first. This has the feel of victim blaming, no? And imagine now from Mosley's point of view. He goes to the lady's house, has sex with her, and then leaves. After all, he did have to work the next day. Later on, he learns she was brutally murdered. I could easily see someone in that situation saying, Oh, hell no, I am never admitting that I was there that night. His chief concern would be if they found semen on her too. Leonard Mosley is going to say awful things because he's a chauvinist dickhead, whether he is guilty or not. Is he looking guilty as hell lately? Yes. But let's not put the blinders on, right? From Paul. All right, thank you for sending that email in, Paul. And I can definitely appreciate your perspective. And Paul has been a longtime listener to the show and a big supporter. And the first thing that I want to clarify is, just because the last few episodes of the show have been about Leonard Mosley does not mean that we have blinders on. At least I can say it does not mean that I have blinders on. That's just where we're at in the investigation right now. And I have absolutely not written off Francis Johnson as a suspect. In fact, Francis Johnson is a lot of the reason for the trip to Texas next week. We've got some new information about him in this new open records request that we're going to be covering. And some of that information is what has caused me to go ahead and book the flight and let's go to Texas. And regarding the points that you made in your email, Paul, the big issue with saying that Francis told these different people that he was there that night and he had the fight and that he saw Leonard Mosley come and go is that that's all hearsay. Now, I'm not saying that I don't believe it. I mean, some of that comes from Ed himself. But looking at what's admissible in court, Ed saying that he heard Francis say that, or Kenny Snow saying he heard Francis say that, or Margie Jackson saying she heard Francis say that, doesn't actually hold up. It doesn't mean that it's not relevant. It definitely is relevant to the investigation. But the way that I conduct my investigations is that I don't believe anyone. I tell not only Ed, but I've told Kenny and Carrie Max Cook and several other people who have asked me to work on their cases over the last year that I do not believe anything. I'm only interested in what I can prove. So in Francis's case, we don't have any corroborating evidence to these statements. We may find some, but right now we don't. In Leonard's case, the things we've covered over the last several weeks, these are all evidence items that we can prove. We have recorded statements of him saying these things. We have transcripts of him saying them. We have trial testimony where he said these things. We have physical evidence items like the semen found on the crime scene that matches his blood type, and so on and so forth. Now, none of this makes Leonard guilty, but I definitely believe the case that we've covered about Leonard to this point most certainly qualifies him as a suspect. And regarding your point about a theory that Leonard may have came, had sex with Elnora, and then left, and then she was murdered afterwards, you said that he would most definitely be worried about semen on the crime scene. But I would argue that if that's the case, he probably would have taken a different approach. If he knew for a fact that he had been there that night, and had sex with her, and his semen is on the crime scene, I would think that the most logical behavior would be to tell the police, I was there last night and I had sex with her. That way, when they found the evidence on the crime scene, it would already be explained away. Also keep in mind that if Leonard was there and did have sex with her and leave, it wouldn't have been until after midnight. He doesn't even get off work until 11 o'clock at night. And as we heard last week in the Tim Lowndes interview, Leonard was very well aware of the fact that they knew where Ed Eights was after 11 o'clock at night. So if that theory is true, and that is actually what happened, I would say that Leonard may not be guilty of taking Elnora's life, but he is certainly guilty of taking Edward Eight's life, because telling the truth would have acquitted Ed. All right, Bob, great discussion. Let's take a quick break here for the ad and move on to calls. Sounds good. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right, first caller of the night. I'm on the air with Tracy from Baltimore. Thanks for sticking out our technical difficulties, Tracy. Uh, Mike forgot to put his headphones in. <laughs> no, no problem. Mike is forgiven. <laughs> Luckily, you were the first call of the night, and I was not on another call because I just heard Mike going, "What? What's your name? Who are you? What? Huh?" <laughs> I'll answer. I'll answer to anything, but Tracy works the best. Okay, well, I'll call you Tracy. So, what's going on tonight, Tracy? Well, I had one of those moments when I was listening this week where I kind of like had to pause and think to myself, did he really just say what I think he said and go back and listen to it again? When Leonard was talking with the investigator and he, he had mentioned something about, I think it was my fault. She was expecting me. There was dinner on the stove. He also said she called me at 11. Right. And that is when the investigator said, well, see, this is why I think Ed didn't do it, because we know where he was after 11. So I'm, I'm just throwing it out there that could she have actually called the house and spoken to Angela at 11 that night? We know for a fact that she did not, did not call the house because we have her phone records and that was long distance. So she did, okay. she did not call the house, but Leonard would have still been at work. That was my thought was he, he mentioned that he would have to call her from the office phone when he tried in the past. So how would she call him at 11 at work? We do know that in, an, in another uh, testimony from Angela, where she testified that on, I think on two different occasions that she said specifically that she would call him at work. At 11 o'clock, he was off, but he was still there because he would take a shower and things. So she said she would call him at 11 o'clock. The, the supervisor would okay. answer, and then the supervisor so would go get him. So it is possible she called him at work, but not possible that she called him to Angela that night. It, it is a good point, though, at that time, because... Leonard, you're right. He did very clearly say he did not say this to Huckel, but he did very clearly say to Tim Lowndes that she called me that night at 11 o'clock. Exactly. And then the interesting part to me was the reaction. So Lowndes, you're right. He followed that up with saying, see, now that's why I don't think that he did it, because he, we know where he was at after 11. And then there's this, it, it just says inaudible in the transcript, but if, did you listen to the interview at the end or did you just... I, tr I tried, but it was difficult. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to hear. But for the little bit, for the people that did listen to it, you can pick up, if you remember way back when Jim uh, Clementi and Laura Richards uh, from the Real Crime Profile podcast analyzed Jay Wilde's statements, you heard him say things like, yes. he's not buying into this or that he doesn't even believe that himself. And they were talking about speech patterns. Yes. And so what I noticed in listening to the interview was there are certain times, and it was the same thing when Leonard was talking to me, 
where he was very confident and you could hear him clearly. His voice was loud and he, he was believing what he was saying or he was confident in what he was saying. But then, like in this instance, Leonard didn't know that they knew where Ed was after 11. That was obvious from that. So when Lowndes said, well, that's why I don't think he did it, because we know where he was after 11, his voice dropped so low down to a complete mumble that you could bear. I think he said, oh, really, twice. Exactly. It, yeah, it sounded to me like if I can if I can act it out, it was like, well, that's why I don't think he did it, because we know where he was at after 11. Oh, oh, oh really? That's another thing I've noticed with, like, the stuttering. I mean, was he known to have a stuttering problem, or is that perhaps a sign of deceit? And my question is, looking back on your face-to-face interview with him now, did you notice him looking down at the ground or stuttering or making any other physical gestures that would indicate deceit to you? Only in one point, only at one time. The entire interview, he was very confident. He was standing. He was confident what he was saying. And if you notice, though, when you listen to the interview, I was acting as though I was buying everything he was telling me. I was doing that on purpose because I I wanted him to keep talking. So as he's telling me some of the things that we know for a fact to be lies, and I was like, oh, really? Sure. He was getting more and more and more confident. Giving him that positive feedback. Right, right. And the only time that he staggered at all and, and literally physically staggered is when I said, well, I talked to Francis Johnson, and Francis Johnson told me that he thinks you did it. And he he literally right. staggered back, looked down at his feet, and then was like, oh, no, 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 no. And then it was after that there were a couple of instances of the stuttering. Now, that was the only time when I heard Leonard stutter during that. So, But then when I'm reading, that we don't have the tape of the Huckel interview, but we just have the transcript. But in reading right. the transcript, you can read his stuttering. And, it, and it's only at, at certain points he's confident, and you can hear it in the Lowndes interview, that he's confident, right. you can hear him just fine. And then when when there's a question that I would think, if he had something to hide, would make him nervous, he comes with a stuttering. And that's why I had pointed out, and, and this is just, you know, this is a this is a statement behavior analysis by someone who's not an expert in statement analysis, me. Sure, right. Right. But, but, but there's some common sense things that we can kind of put two and two together. Right. Like the mumbling and the mumbling after he finds out that his story just alibied Ed Eights, all of a sudden he changes his right. story and then says, Oh no, 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 it was her and he doesn't he doesn't even correct himself. He just changes it. He says, oh, yeah, that's what she told me. She told me that, that she had called uh, at 11, speaking of the daughter-in-law. Uh, you know, so the, right. the story just changed. But then the thing that, that caught my attention is in both interviews, he's asking repeatedly about any semen evidence, evidence that she had had intercourse and uh, fingerprints on the body. So uh, to me, it was like he was very, very interested in that. And, and some people have different takes on that. And I think we'll probably cover some of that in the we haven't recorded segment one yet. But when we record, depending on what the phone calls are, people have different theories on that. Some people say that, you know, he thinks maybe someone else raped her and Leonard knows about it and he wants to know. To me, I read it as though he's nervous that they're going to find that evidence. And and again, this is strictly speculation from a non-expert. But to me, it would be if, if someone, say, did have sex with her. And then she ended up dead, and they're like, "Oh shit! They're gonna oh they're gonna find this evidence." Then they want to know, "Well, did you did you find any semen? Did you find any 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 of this? Did you find any fingerprints on her body?" Because they they would be worried that they're gonna find that evidence. Absolutely, I agree. And lucky for him, the police were so inept or didn't care enough to actually figure that out. 
Uh, speaking of that, wait till you hear Sunday's episode. You're going to be sick to your no, stomach. I can't wait. <laughs> You're going to be sick. I can't wait. The only other thing, I don't want to take everyone else's time, but the only other thing I was thinking about was, I, I think I've mentioned this before, he always is deflecting away from Angela. So even when, you know, now that we know that he knows there were scratch marks, he tells the police, well, you know, my ex-wife was calling and harassing her. And then he says, you know, well... Angela says, well, it could be Marjorie. It just seems like there's always so much deflection taken away from Angela. Right. And it's like he's protecting Angela other than, you know, he let slip that Angela had called her a few times, but kind of blew it off. Right. To me, the thing that that, drew the, that was the biggest concern to me was his insistence to Huckel, to Lowndes, and to me that his that there was no relationship with Angela. And it's pretty obvious they're clearly what she lived. I know for a fact she lived at this house for two years prior to this. There was it was clearly not a one night stand. So then I, I just but clearly they define relationship. Her and him and Angela define it in two very different ways. That is for sure. Well, yeah. Well, that's that's if they're both to be, to be believed. But you know, from speaking with Angela, I mean, she was living with him prior to having the baby. The baby was born in ninety two. She was living with him right. prior to that. She says that he asked her to come back, and she said, you have to choose between me and Elnora, and he did choose. It's why create the distance, and to me, it's not creating di- – it, it, it just – I think it could be a possibility that if one that if one or the other was involved, they're probably both involved. And if one of them gets gets busted, the other one would get busted too if they were involved. Present- I better cover her ass, and she better cover mine kind of situation. Right. And so the last thing Leonard wants to do is to make Angela a suspect by saying that she was – yeah, she was my girlfriend, and I was cheating on her. He does not want to do that, or he, you know, if by chance they were involved, he would never want to do that because if he did that, that's going to implicate Angela, which would also implicate him. Right, and you can look at it the other way too. And if they are not involved, why not just tell the truth? Right. Why would Angela insist on saying that they were involved? You know, exactly. if, if they weren't. So I don't know. But hey, that's a great call, Tracy. Thank you so much for calling in. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great night, and thanks for all you do. All right. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Bye. All right, I am on the air now with Christina from Atlanta. And Christina, Mike says here on my screen that you are a public defender in Atlanta. I am. Hey, Bob, how are you? I'm really good. And hey, thank you for your service. Thank you. I appreciate that. I really love it, and I wouldn't do it if I didn't, because there's definitely no money in it, and it's heartbreaking every day. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I'm sure it's a tough and a very thankless job. Yes, it is. Okay, so Mike says you want to discuss evidence retention. Yes. I sent an email to y'all yesterday, and I know you get probably a gajillion emails, so I didn't know if it would come through. I've never called in before, but I thought this was a worthy topic. So basically, I have kind of a question and a comment, and that is, I haven't read the Texas evidence retention statute, but we do have a similar statute in Georgia that was enacted in 2003. Um, And our statute requires only that biological evidence is retained, not all physical evidence. Right. So my question is, do you know, is Texas's statute the same in that respect, or is it maybe broader than the Georgia statute? Um, Well, I'm obviously not familiar with the Georgia statute. The Texas statute uh, that was enacted in 2001, you're exactly right, is for biological evidence preservation. Actually, your your email did come through. That was one of the emails that Mike had picked out to read uh, during the first segment, which luckily we haven't recorded yet because I'd much rather have the conversation with you. Okay. 
Because I was reading it and I thought, you know, that's kind of a good point. And I wonder how that would play out because, you know, like in Kenny Snow's case, and I think you mentioned this in your email, uh, you know, they had a hat and uh, with blood on it and a mace can with blood and fingerprints on it, uh, which are items of physical right. evidence. And they destroyed them in 2002. And so the, the, I guess the question would be, would that be considered biological evidence? And I think certainly by today's right. standards, any investigator would know or prosecutor that the blood on that piece of evidence is biological evidence and therefore must be preserved. Exactly. And I would think in 1997 when this happened, they probably by then knew that as well. And maybe even back as, as far back as the early 90s when Ed's case was going on, that, that you know, if they, if they clearly saw blood on something, they would keep that. Uh, but but I, I definitely see where, especially in an older case, where that could be brought into question, I guess. Uh, you know, whether, well, it was just a hat. Well, yeah, but it's a hat with blood on it. The right. blood is biological evidence. Was there blood on the hat and on the mace can? Yes, I believe there was. Okay, so that would be a game changer, because my thought process was, if these were just items of physical evidence, and there was no way to take DNA from those items in 2002 and 2003, and mainly talking about contact DNA testing, where you're testing for skin cells, which, of course, are not visible to the naked eye, the only way you know they're there is if you do a DNA test. Back in 2002, when those items were destroyed, that wasn't possible to do. So my question was, you know, were these items really considered biological evidence in 2002 when they were destroyed, or were they just merely items of physical evidence that were connected to the crime? Yeah, I think in this case, they would be considered biological, but for, for discussion's sake, so let's assume the hat didn't have blood on it. You know, then, then I think it would mm -hmm. be it would certainly raise the question of destroying now, like like you said, now in 2017 standards, we know that you could mm -hmm. you could swab the inside of the brim of that hat and get right. skin cells off of it. But they did not know exactly. that in 1997 or in 2002 that that was even a possibility. So I, I think that that would call it into question. Now, that, that law has been updated uh, a couple of times since 2001. But I, I, I don't know. And you raise a really good question. I don't know what the evidence preservation laws are for physical evidence in Texas. You know, if it's just mm -hmm. a piece of anything for, you know, the, 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 say the, the, the telephone in Ed's case that was found on the floor. You know, they, if there was no DNA on that, but they, but they retain it for evidence yeah. made for fingerprints, are they required to keep it? I would think they would, you know, but the common sense would say you want to keep it until all appeals are exhausted because you might have to retry them again. And if you don't have the evidence, yeah. you're screwed. But I don't, what, what is the law is regarding physical evidence in Georgia? I don't want to misspeak, but I believe it's the typical retention policy. And, of course, it's going to vary based on every clerk's office, every DA's office, every police department. But the typical rule is once appeals are exhausted, people usually hang on to stuff between five and seven years. And okay. that's the rule. Like, you know, after that time, we can throw it away. But I also worked as a staff attorney at the Georgia Innocence Project for two years. And so I worked on post-conviction DNA cases. And it was not at all unusual for us to find evidence that was 20, 30, and even 40 years old. So just because sometimes people throw it away doesn't necessarily mean you can count on it having been thrown away just because it's been a certain amount of time past, you know, their appeals have been completed. Right. And I would and I would think that there would be some kind of legislation in there to protect. Like I said, look at, uh, at Joey. Watt. Are you, do you follow Undisclosed? Yeah, I, I worked on that case a little bit um, when I was still there. Not a lot, but I'm definitely very familiar with it before the podcast came out. With the Joey Watkins case? Yes. 
Right. So, uh, you know, I just listened to their last episode and they haven't said what the plan is. But uh, and in the episode that dropped uh, this past Monday, you know, they they, they, mm-hmm. they kind of finished the case and then they, they led into next week. They're going to say what's coming next. So I'm going to assume that they have found some newly discovered evidence, something to reopen it. And it just goes to, sh- to show you that a case is really never dead until the person is dead. You know, even even right. after they're gone, because. You know, I, and I don't know in Georgia. Do you can you only file one habeas claim, or is is there a limit on that in Georgia? Um, you get a state habeas and a federal habeas. You can try to file a successive one, uh, a successive habeas, that's what they call it. I'm not all that familiar with habeas. I know that once you get past your first one, the chances just get even lower of right. it getting granted, but. I mean, theoretically, if you find new evidence, you can file a new habeas. Right, and that see that's the case in te- in Texas. You get as as the, you know the, the the phraseology that's that I've heard from attorneys in Texas is that in Texas you get one bite at the apple with habeas. You file your habeas claim. Mm-hmm. If you lose it, you can a federal you can you can appeal that federally, but there's a time limit, like a year or something, to do that. And after that, your case right. is dead unless you can bring in newly discovered evidence. Right. And we also, in Georgia, we have um, another avenue, and I think they've talked about it on Undisclosed, is an extraordinary motion for a new trial. And that is based on new evidence. It can be DNA or other kind of new evidence. So that's that's another motion. And those, you only get one. So, okay. you know, that is a one bite at the apple. If you filed one based on new evidence and you lost, and then later on some more new evidence came up, the DAs could oppose that just on the basis that you already had one, so you don't get another one. Okay. In, in Texas, it kind of leaves it open, too, and that's why I would think they would want to to maintain any evidence because you, know, you, you, you always have the newly discovered evidence. Can, you can file another subsequent habeas claim based on that. So, you know, like in Ed's case, well, Curry Max Cook's case. 40 years after the fact, he got his conviction thrown out. He had already been let right. out. He had already, you know, technically because of the Alfred plea, he had already served his sentences and has been out for 20 years and just got his conviction thrown out. And, and technically, the state could try him again now if they wanted to. And that would be really difficult to do with, without any evidence. But then in Texas, the reason it really stays alive forever is part of that 2001 law. I believe it was part of that law. I, I was here d- described as Article 64. Uh, but what it is is that you have the right to have DNA evidence tested at any time. So, And you can do that over and over and over again. So you know, you can, you can say, I want this tested and have it tested and it comes back and it's nothing. Then you find another piece of evidence that has biological evidence. You can have that tested again which always opens you back okay. up for an 1107 writ to come back and, and claim actual innocence based on the results of that testing. Okay. Wow. The other part of the statute that I was talking about here in Georgia, um, that ours requires only the retention of biological evidence, that statute, the evidence retention statute, was passed in conjunction with our DNA testing statute. So they kind of went together hand in hand, right. being that we had no law that that allowed for post-conviction DNA testing prior to 2003. Um, And so that was a new thing. And along with the legislature saying, you know what, we think people who have been convicted of crimes have the right to have that DNA tested when the technology wasn't there at the time of their trial. So we want them to be able to do that. And also we're going to pass this retention law beginning in 2003 that says you've got to keep biological evidence until someone's sentence is complete. That's the law in Georgia. Right. And, and that sounds very, I think we're, Texas was about two years ahead of that, but it sounds almost identical because that law not only required them to retain the evidence, but just like you said in Georgia, it was the same thing that it was tied in with that was the right to have the DNA tested. 
exactly. Yeah. When you think about it that way, it makes sense that they would only say you need to retain biological evidence because the purpose of it was so that people could get DNA testing on physical evidence. Right. Right. Well, hey, Christina, thank you so much for calling. This was a, this was a great phone call. No problem. Thank you. I really love the show. Keep up the good work. It's hard. I've done it, so I, <laughs> I know it's difficult, but you're doing a great job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Yep. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. For our last caller of the night, I am on the phone with Mary from Texas. How are you doing tonight, Mary? I'm good, Bob. How are you doing? Doing really well. What's going on tonight? Okay. So I don't know why I'm so obsessed with what actually happened that night with the details. You probably get tired of speculating, but, um, but there are a couple of assumptions that are being made that I think really pin the story down. And if you remove some of the assumptions, then it opens up some other opportunities around, um, the night that Elnora died. Okay. Okay. So I think the one, one of the big assumptions is that she actually had sex that night. But there is a lot of evidence that says that may not have happened. If you look at the medical examiner's testimonies with the rape kit, and if you, even the, uh, and the detective from ISIS, you know, when he's interviewing Leonard Mosley, he says repeatedly that he, uh, you know, now there's no sign of anything happening to her. Right. And so if you remove that assumption, then it leaves open the fact that it's a lot simpler that Elnora, maybe she was in a bathrobe, laid it down on her bed, got into the bathroom to take a shower, maybe after she cooked a meal, waiting for Leonard. And then when she's in the bathroom, that's where the struggle starts. So Angela comes in on her, then, um, you know, rips the towel thing off the wall, goes into the bedroom. Um, you can see where in the pictures, the bathrobe is actually kind of laying like under the comforter, which would happen if, if it was just laying on the bed and then it kind of knocked over, you know? So maybe the struggle went there. She got away, tried to make a break for the phone. It got ripped out of her hand. Uh, maybe there was a knife there from the food prep. So she ended up with a throat slash. And then um, I don't know whether Litter, you know, came later that night or Angela told him about it and he came later or whatever. But the thought that he actually maybe wasn't there on the scene but went back later to help maybe clean it up a little bit, kind of explains a lot of things. Like maybe he decided to move the car so that she didn't look like she was there. Or, you know, that's when he hung the towel. He could have even uh, planted, maybe he used a plastic whisk broom to, to, uh, with the little plastic fibers <laughs> to try and clean up some hairs. Or maybe he planted somebody's semen in a little spot on the comforter, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 it opens up a lot of opportunities around that. And um, it also kind of explains a lot of his, like, he's obsessed with that car being moved, you know? So to right. me, it seems like it's something that, you know, he had this bright idea of moving it. So he knows it was so cool that he has to talk about it, you know? And there's also one more thing. Well, hold, hold off on your last thing. Let, let's address the ones you, you mentioned already, and then we'll, because I have okay. a okay, short attention it, span, and I'll it. forget what I was going to say. Uh, okay. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, first of all, I want to point out that you know we're, we're, you're saying Leonard and Angela, and and that's certainly a possibility of suspects. But I want to make sure it's clear to everybody that you know th- this could be you know person A and person B. We don't know who actually did this. But regarding the sex, 
I think I think you're right. Uh, we we definitely kind of box ourselves in with a theory if she had sex, and I, I would say that uh, it's definitely not concrete. We don't know that she had sex. I believe personally, and that's just my personal opinion, that it's a little more than an assumption. And and the reason I say that is, is this. Uh, there's a, there's a few different reasons, but one of the things is if you read Detective Melody McKay's testimony, she said, and it's, and it's in direct conflict with what Waller says, and we get into this a little bit more on Sunday, but Melody mm-hmm. McKay says that they ran a black light over Elnora's buttocks and that there was a substance on her buttocks that reacted as though it was semen. Right. We don't know whatever came of that because Melody McKay's report was conveniently missing from the file. We have every other police officer report except for Melody McKay's in this open record request. Do you know if anything else reacts to black light besides semen? Uh, yeah, it could be other bodily fluids. It could be saliva. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that will react to a black light. So it does, we don't know that it was semen, but we all, all we know is that she said that she ran a black light over it. And something reacted as though it was semen. Only a lab could tell if it actually is or not. So we have that. And we have, the, of course, the semen stain on the bed. And then we go into the bedroom and, and look at where things are at. Like you mentioned, the robe was under the comforter. But to me, the way and you've looked at the pictures, it doesn't look to me. I, I can't figure out a way for the robe to get under the comforter the way that it was. Because the, the comforter, so like if the, if, the, if the robe was on top of the bed and then got pulled off, so the, the comforter did not flip over. It like slids. It's actually reversible comforters, blue on the other side. But so the 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 the, the comforter slid off uh, and maintaining. If if I'm I'm trying to I'm, I'm with my hand trying to show you exactly what I'm talking about, but you can't see it, can you? <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I I'm I'm with you. <laughs> okay, yeah. So if it slides off like that, then the robe should still be on top of the comforter, but it's underneath the comforter. Now that doesn't rule out the the bat theory. What it would mean is that she took her robe off in the bedroom and put it on the floor next to her bed and took her yeah. her underwear off on the floor on the other side of the room over by the by the dresser and just left them on the floor all of those are are certainly possibilities to to me i think that the most likely and certainly not concrete scenario is that not necessarily had sex but there was some kind of sexual activity based on where the underwear were where the robe is the comforter slid over and possibly having semen on her body is a pretty good indication that there was something sexual either happening or about to happen. But I do agree with you that that we do not know for certain because the ME, like you said, in the rape kit said there was no signs of spermatozoa in her body, uh, oral, anal, right. or vaginal. So, and, and that's so when Lowndes said that, he was just going off of the ME's testimony, uh, you know, the ME's report that said there's no evidence of rape. And so you would assume Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know, I think that that was, I just couldn't get it out of my head that that assumption was really shaping a lot of the story, you know, that if if it wasn't for certain, that that really did open up a lot of other possibilities. Yeah. And you, your other point about uh, the possibility of coming back, it's funny you said that because Mike and I were just having this conversation either this morning or yesterday, going through the evidence on the timeline. And we're wondering, could it be possible that that someone went back the next morning? We don't even know the cause. Of, we don't even know the time of death, actually. We have no idea when the time right. of death is. And we tried mm-hmm. to narrow that down by looking at uh, lividity and rigor mortis. Unfortunately, whether she was killed the night before or first thing in the morning, they're both still in the same range of where they would be as far as uh, lividity and rigor mortis. So we have no idea the cause of death. Right. But uh, we do know that you know if Leonard happened to be involved, 
that he didn't go to work till 1130, but he was gone by seven in the morning. So we don't know where he was. So so there certainly is a possibility that if he was involved, that he returned to that crime scene in the morning before Johnny got home. You know, knowing that there may have been two separate kind of events, you know, the, the actual crime itself and then somebody going back and trying to do a few things, it kind of, uh, you know, makes you really think about, you know, well, this person had some time to think about what they were wanting to do to maybe hide it a little bit more, you know, like the moving the car. I don't think a person would think to do that while they were there on the spot. But that's something if you went home for a few hours, you would think, oh, got to go back and do that, you know. Right. And then you got to think about, and, and, and I'm really just kind of spitballing with you here as I'm thinking about this, the, the whole moving of the car, you know, we think about, okay, put yourself in the mind of the criminal, of the offender. Why would you move the car? Well, obviously, the only purpose in moving the car 20 feet further forward is to delay the amount of time it took before somebody realized that Elnora was home and dead, right? So people would yeah. assume she went to work. Yeah. So And so then I started thinking, okay, what's the purpose in that? And that's actually one of the things that makes me think that it's it's always a nagging thing. Like, that doesn't make Leonard make sense to me. Not that it, Not that it couldn't be, but it's like, well, Leonard would know that Okay, so they don't find her in the morning. They're going to find her by the evening, and all the evidence is still going to be the same. So why delay? Uh, unless it's, you know, I just need time to get my story straight. But that part, actually, to me, makes more sense uh, towards, like, like say, Francis Johnson. It doesn't make sense for Ed. doesn't make sense for Leonard. You know, at least not on, the, not on his face. But somebody like Francis Johnson, who, say, is supposed to be in Georgia, and say if he was involved and he did it, okay, I need to move her car so they don't find her body until after I'm all the way back in Georgia and then go get on a bus first thing in the morning and get the hell out of there. That aspect of it actually makes more sense to me for Francis than it does for Leonard. Yeah, that's a, a thinking if the person was think, really trying to actually gain something from it and not just, you know, thinking this will help, you know? We're, I mean, when, when we're looking at, you know, post-defense behavior and, and what, a, what a criminal does to try to conceal a body, you know, you have things like permanent concealment, like, you know, what we saw in the Heyman Lee case where, you know, it's move the body away from the place where it was killed, bury the body and hope nobody ever finds it. And what this is, is it's it's a known temporary concealment. Whoever did this knew yeah. eventually someone's going to find her body and they're going to know that she was killed inside of her mobile home. So for whatever reason, they took the time to put the towel on the window and move the car. Both items It's the only uh, only thing that we've seen as far as concealment. And they're both designed to just delay the time that it took before somebody found out she was there. You know, and, and that's another thing when you look at it, like compared to Ed, well, think about Ed. Ed could actually see her car. I have I have photos that I took the first time I went to Tyler to investigate this case where I went to the, the door that Ed comes out of, uh, where anybody comes out of his grandmother's house and, and where, where grandmother's garden is that she works in all day, every day. And you could see the car sitting right there from there. So so somebody who who knows that and has that view all the time. They wouldn't hide the car in a place where they know you can see the car right from their house. They know their grandmother's right. going to see it, the it car. Right, it wouldn't be concealed in their eyes. Right. No. Yeah. So it doesn't it doesn't make sense, but it makes more sense to me somebody that, you know, is is their their view of the house is, you know, almost that they have a a behavior that they have in mind that they drive past the house and see the car. You know, they they I always know when Elnora's right. home because when I drive by, I see her car. That's the type yes, of person. I just to, need to move it out of you. Right, right. So that's the type of person that would say, "Well, okay, how do I how do I know when Elnora's home? 
because when I drive by, I see her car. So let me move the car so no one will know she's home. Not not paying any attention to the fact that Johnny Pryor's house is right next door, and and all she had to do was go onto her back porch, and she would have seen the car. You know, she happened to not do that that day. She didn't go into her back porch. But it's just to me, this is someone that drives past that house, and their indication that Elnora's home is that her they can see her car. I agree. I think I think that's it. Just feels like the only reason why it would have been moved. First of all, let me apologize for all the big rants. I didn't think I was going to get through, and I had all these notes I wanted to cover. That's right. You you, so. you triggered some thoughts in my mind. That that whole, that whole bit I just did there about the, about the car being moved. I kind of just was figuring that out as I was talking to you. So I'm glad you called. Awesome. <laughs> so the only other thing um, that I uh, I have on my notes is that uh, okay. So it was in the trial where they're discussing he's being um questioned and they're discussing one of his earlier interviews where he was saying that he he knew who did it and he knew a little bit too much information about the position of the body you're, and, talk, you're and, talking about leonard right uh, yeah i'm still okay. talking about him sorry okay. no that's all right i <laughs> and, just want to make sure i knew we were on the same page so that was, I think, I think that was uh, maybe Edward Eighth attorney that was questioning that, and you know he uh, was was saying saying no, no, I didn't know anything. But to me, that almost makes me think early on that he may have been prepared to turn Angela in, and for some reason then he changed his mind because he was kind of wavering. Because um, in earlier interviews he was saying, yeah, I, I I have some information, I know who did it, and then eventually he just dropped that. So that was another thing that I just really noticed listening to his some of his interviews and stuff. So yeah, that's that's definitely possible if he was involved, and you know, there, and it could have been he was starting to get nervous at that point, and and so again, let's put ourselves in a scenario where he was involved in the killing. So th- then track, yeah. go ahead and track his interviews that we there's known interviews that we have. Okay, his first interview hides the fact from Huckel that he goes over there Thursdays and he was supposed to be there Thursday. That is huge. And I talk about that a little bit in the first segment, but it's okay. okay. So, so you hear more about it, but, but that's, that's huge. I mean, we're talking about a guy who, who by the time trial rolled around is presenting himself as the guy that just wants to help and do everything he can to find out who killed his fiance, but go back to the beginning when he didn't know Ed H was a suspect. He, he, all he knew was they were calling him down for questioning. And when they called him down for questioning, he doesn't say a word about the, the most significant event that was going on, which is the fact that he goes over there every Thursday and, and he was supposed to go over that Thursday and she was suspecting him. He intentionally leaves that out. It was, it was crazy when I figured out when reading that, that Dale Huckel, the lead investigator, the police never knew that all the way up to trial. They never knew. Tim Lowndes knew. Lowndes figured it out because Lowndes probably wow. talked to, uh, I'm, I'm guessing by talking to Kubia and talking to Johnny and talking to all the people he talked to, somewhere that came up. And he brought, he obviously brought it up to Leonard in his first interview. But, you know, we, we just, it's one of those things that you, know, you, re, you, you read about it in the trial testimony and the trial transcripts. You're, you hear about it in Lowndes' testimony. It's one of those things you just, we know. We just and we've known it since the beginning. We just assume that that people knew about it this whole time, and then to realize that holy shit, the police never knew. Because I mean, and Huckel straight up testified at the end of the first trial that he had no idea that Leonard went over there on Thursdays. And so when he starts with that, do you, do you know when the first the first time that he actually when they found out? Because I'm kind of curious, like you know, that, did that not ring any alarm bells for anybody? The first time. <laughs> you know? The first time 
that the, the that the police found out unless the unless Huckel was lying under oath, which I wouldn't put past him. But the first time, according to the record, that Dale Huckel, the lead investigator on the case, found that out was at that trial, which means the entire investigation he never knew that the <sighs> four or five years between uh when or the, excuse me the three years between when the offense happened and when the trial happened he never knew and i i need to go back and review now to see if dobbs knew i'm assuming he did because he had the isis file and it was clear that i think the only person that knew was the isis investigator and i'm guessing yeah that that investigator seemed like he was kind of on to something but he just never you know made the leap and just let it go and I, it, it well, was a he, little bit strange because it, it felt like he he knew more than anybody else or at least i know. think that he did and i've talked to tim lowndes and he's he's a sharp guy and he didn't tell me as much but he said because so, he didn't really he was trying to remember he remembered a little bit but not all of it but when you read his testimony at the second trial he straight up said that leonard mosley was a suspect to him he thought that leonard mosley was a good suspect for this he knew that but the problem is there's only so much he can do he's a defense investigator what needed to happen was dale Huckel needed to do his fucking job pardon my french and he should have known that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's such a shame because you really you do you read his testimony, and you listen to even his interview with Leonard. I mean, you just sense that this guy knows this guy's lying, or you, this guy knows something's not quite right. This is not a normal way to react, but you know, but nothing ever happens with it. Right. Um, it just is really frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, uh, Mary, I think this is a great note for us to end on. This was a really awesome call. Hey, uh, are you close to Dallas, Mary? Um, no, I'm in Houston, actually. Oh, that's a ways Sorry. away. Because uh, <laughs> uh, Mike and I are actually heading down to Dallas, and we'll be in Tyler this week, and we're going to do a fan meetup on Wednesday. So if you feel like taking a drive Wednesday night, uh, a week from tonight when we're recording this, uh, we're going to be at the Buffalo Wild Wings in Cedar Hill at 730, and we're actually going to record next week's Friday follow-up live at Buffalo Wild Wings in Cedar Hill on Wednesday the 18th. Oh, that's going to be a great episode. That is really fun. Well, we've never done yeah. it before, so it's either going to be a great episode or it's going to suck. But one or the other, it's going to be fun, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to set expectations too right. high. Right? <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for calling, Mary. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bob, for giving me something to be so passionate about. I'm not usually like this. So oh. Oh, <laughs> I welcome. appreciate the work you're doing. It's great. All right. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. So that's it for this week's Friday follow-up. Thanks to everyone who participated, and I really hope we get a lot of you to come out to next week's live recording of the Friday follow-up. Remember, we're meeting Wednesday night, the 18th, at 7.30 p.m. local time at Buffalo Wild Wings in Cedar Hill, Texas. Hopefully we'll see lots of you there, but until next week, see ya! Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. Opening music was To the Top by Score Squad. All our music was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. And thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller. Keep sending us in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send in new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been 
truth and justice.